This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. It turns out that dogs may help find a cure for cancer in people. It's true. Man's best friend gets many of the same kinds of cancer we do and often responds well to the same treatments. Veterinarian Dr. Rodney Page leads the Flint Animal Cancer Center at Colorado State University. And many of our clinical studies are designed to be beneficial to both species from the very beginning. Dr. Page says combining the efforts of cancer research from the medical and veterinary worlds can reduce the cost and reduce the time to new drug discoveries or new treatment device discoveries for people and pets. It's a win-win situation. This approach to research is known as comparative oncology and is mentioned for the first time in Colorado's new cancer plan. Journalist Arlene Weintraub writes about comparative oncology in her new book, Heal, The Vital Role of Dogs in the Search for Cancer Cures. Arlene, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. The dogs that participate in the studies, they aren't lab animals. They're actually pets who have gotten cancer, and their owners enroll them in these clinical trials, often with the hope of extending the lives of their pets. One person who's benefited from these studies is Emily Brown of Colorado Springs. She talks about what this research meant to her in a CSU video. I was given three months to live 18 years ago. My miracle lies so much in the experimental treatment. Those owners are not only being given hope, but they're being given hope that kids like me, even though I'm not a kid anymore, they'll have that opportunity to grow up. I mean, I'm 29 now, I'll be 30 in a year. I didn't think I'd live to see 13. Brown had a rare kind of bone cancer that often affects children. She was treated with chemotherapy, tested on dogs. Arlene, you spoke with the owners of a Labrador retriever named Emmy, who was also treated for that disease during later studies at CSU. Can you tell us Emmy's story? Right. Well, Emmy uh, was a black Labrador retriever who uh, got osteosarcoma. And she was enrolled in an innovative trial of a therapy called gene therapy. And the idea of this is you insert a therapeutic gene into the body and uh, and it will excrete a protein to fight disease. And this is being looked at in in many different diseases, including cancer. And Emmy did quite well in the trial. She um, she underwent uh, amputation, which is commonly used in in dogs, unlike uh, people. Uh, Dogs do very well uh, without a limb. And um, and uh, her her tissues went on to be studied to see exactly what this gene was doing when it was inserted into the body, and uh, she actually was cured, and she went on to live to uh, a ripe old age of about twelve, I think. Right, and, and Emmy's owners, Kathy and Ron Streeter of Franktown, uh, had experience with chemotherapy because Kathy had breast cancer. What was it like for them to make the decision to put their dog into a clinical trial? Well, it was very difficult for Kathy. She underwent very harsh chemo regimen for her breast cancer. And uh, she, you know, her thought was, I don't want to poison my dog because she felt that she had been poisoned, as, as, as many people do when they're undergoing chemotherapy. And But the, at the same time, she was cured, and she was also one of the earliest beneficiaries of what they call personalized medicine, 
because she uh, tested positive for a mutation called HER2. And there is a targeted uh, therapy on the market for women with HER2 positive breast cancer. And she received that and she was cured. And so she understood the benefit of personalized medicine and really uh, was hoping that it could benefit her dog and ultimately children. So that is what made her decide to finally enroll Emmy in the trial. And that brings up a a really important point. If a person has cancer, they elect for treatment. A, A dog, of course, can't do that. Isn't putting a dog through a possibly painful treatment cruel? Well, you know, I explore this issue in in my book. What are the, what are the ethics of this? Because a lot of people might not be comfortable with the idea of somebody experimenting on their dog. Uh, but I, what I do is I encourage readers to think of it as if they were making the decision about whether to enroll a child in a clinical trial. And uh, it's really the same. It's personal ethics. What? What? How do you feel about that? Um, they can't make a decision for themselves. You ultimately have to. Uh, give the legal consent for a child to be involved in a clinical trial. In the case of Emily Brown, obviously, it saved her life. And in the case of many of the dogs I met while reporting this book, it's it saved their lives, literally, when there was no other choice often but euthanasia. When people uh, go into these trials, is it really to just help their pets, or do they have some sort of altruistic idea that they can also be helping uh, cure cancer for humans? Well, the pet owners I spoke to were quite honest and said it really was to help their pets first and foremost. And, of course, the veterinarians feel that too. They they take a vow to do what's best for the animals. So that was first and foremost the number one goal. But everybody felt that uh, if what's learned from my pet ends up helping people, then that's just icing on the cake. Are there other animals out there besides dogs that uh, have similar cancers to humans that we can study? Um, Yes. This field of research, which is known as comparative oncology, also includes cats. And I have a chapter in my book about cats. Uh, Some cats are a very good model for some types of human cancer, including a, a particularly aggressive type of breast cancer called triple negative breast cancer, Uh, despite the fact that there have been lots of advances in breast cancer in recent years, that particular form of the disease still remains very tough to beat, and cats get a similar form of it. So now there's uh, increasing interest in including cats in these trials as well. I've heard many cancer studies use lab rats. Why is that type of research not as sufficient as uh, using dogs in cancer research for humans? Yes, uh, rats and mice are the most common lab animals used in medical research. And the problem with them is that they don't develop the disease naturally. They have to be manipulated in some way, whether they're genetically engineered or they have tumors implanted under their skin. And often an experimental treatment will look really great in rats and mice, and then they bring it into people and it doesn't do a thing. And this has been a problem that has plagued oncology research for, for decades And dogs, and in some cases cats, are much more natural models of the disease. They develop it naturally. Uh, Often it looks exactly like a human cancer. In fact, melanoma is a good example of one that is virtually identical in dogs and people. So it's thought to be um, a much better model for the human cancer experience and therefore a much better predictor of how a drug might do in humans. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel, and we're speaking with journalist Arlene Weintraub about how dogs may help find the cure for cancer in humans. You visit a number of veterinary clinics around the country. 
How does the CSU program here in Colorado fit into the larger story of comparative oncology? Well, Colorado State is one of the leaders in comparative oncology. They've really been ahead on this movement. And uh, Dr. Steve Withrow, who's a retired director of this, the center, was uh, one of the pioneers of many um, osteosarcoma treatments that are now widely used in children. And um, not just drugs have been studied at Colorado State, but also surgical techniques, treatment techniques that uh, look at different ways of uh, giving patients chemotherapy. Uh, A lot of those were pioneered in dogs treated at Colorado State. And also, uh, the university has worked quite closely with Denver Children's Hospital, trading advice on what looks what has looked good in dogs and what might be applicable to, to people, and and actually Emily Brown was a, one of the earliest beneficiaries of that collaboration. So let's say someone listening right now has a dog who has cancer. Can they just simply call CSU and say, "Hey, can we get into this program?" Or or how does that work? Well, they they can uh, do that. They can check CSU's website for all of the clinical trials that are currently enrolling patients. There is also a Uh, consortium called the Comparative Oncology Trials Consortium. And uh, they have a website that lists uh, what's happening at Colorado State, as well as several other universities around the country that are involved in this research. And are there skeptics out there that say, nah, this isn't isn't working? What what are you talking about? Dogs and humans, cancer, things like that? Uh, there are skeptics. I I interviewed one in my book, actually. Uh, he's a physician in Israel, which is where my sister lived when she was battling her gastric cancer, and he was her physician. And uh, when I was very deep into the reporting of this book, I contacted him and said, hey, I want to tell you what I've learned about and get your opinion. And he was very skeptical. Well, he's a gastroenterologist who treats nothing but the hardest cancers to beat, colorectal cancer, pancreatic cancer, and gastric cancer. And he said to me, you know, we don't treat mice, rats, or dogs. We treat people. And he was a little bit doubtful that <laughs> that animal models could contribute anything. But I think, you know, that's an important voice to have in the book. Arlene, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Author Arlene Weintraub's book is Heal, The Vital Role of Dogs in the Search for Cancer Cures. Last week, we spoke to three of Colorado's top cancer researchers about their quest for the cure. Find a link to that story and photos and video of some canine cancer patients and their owners posted at cprnews.org. Still to come, we'll explore some secret spots inside Denver's Union Station. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. In a little over a month, Denver's Union Station will be bustling more than usual. As a new commuter rail line to Denver International Airport opens for service, it brings the station full circle as the transit hub for downtown Denver, not seen since the height of train travel in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. The station opened in 1881 as the largest structure west of the Mississippi, and author Rhonda Beck says it remains the pride of Denver. Her new book, Union Station in Denver, explores the history of the historical landmark. Your book highlights many famous passengers who have come through Union Station, including Presidents Teddy Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and Harry Truman. More recently, presidential candidate Hillary Clinton toured the station. Is there one historical figure that you wrote about that was one of your favorites? Well, one of my favorite was a story about a guard dog that actually just kind of wandered up on the station, and uh, was they determined he was part bulldog and 
part shepherd. This was back in 1901, and he just took a real keen interest to any of the mail bags. He didn't care about any of the bags that had parcels or other items in it, but for whatever reason, he paid a lot of attention to all the bags that had mail. Maybe he could smell the human touch. I don't know. But uh, he kind of became a little mascot and a guard for the mailroom for a while. So out of all of the historical figures, uh, your favorite what was this bulldog. Did he have a name? I don't know that they named him. I never uh, saw a name in any of the research that I did. One of the threads in your book is the similarity of the station today to what it looked like when that bulldog roamed around because Union Station has structural elements from two previous train stations. One was built in 1880 and was heavily damaged in a fire. The second was built in 1894, and the one we know today was built in 1914. Uh, What remnants can people still see from these older stations? Well, actually, when they were renovating the taking the wooden benches out of the main lobby, uh, they found where people had dropped coins and claim tickets and photographs, and they have saved those and preserved them, and they've framed them and put them on the second floor of the hotel. And then in the back of the station, they were able to preserve several of the wooden benches that uh, had been filled with asbestos. They couldn't afford to abate all of them, but they were able to save a few of them. And so those are some of my favorite, because a lot of people have fond memories about those wooden benches. They're hardly ever not filled uh, when you go through the Great Hall. But more architecturally, why did architects and engineers at that time simply not tear down the entire station? Why did they build on top one after the other? Right. About 1912, they started outgrowing the waiting room and decided they needed to enlarge. And they looked at different options, including actually building a new station elsewhere, but all of those were too costly. So they decided the best thing to do was just to tear out the center section and rebuild it larger. And they actually reused some of the pieces, uh, kept a lot of the stone in the in the basement and, and uh, reused whatever they could. And that has left a few elements from the oldest structures uh, still able to be seen uh, today. Tell me about one spot in the basement of, of the station where uh, the Crawford Hotel has their workout room, and there's a kind of an interesting symbol that was carved into to the rock. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's a mystery because so far I've not been able to find anybody that can identify what it is. But just as you walk into the basement, level with the ground is a fairly large, oh, maybe two-foot diameter engraved circle. And then inside the circle, there were some other type of symbol, which I was assuming, you know, had been like a mason from 1880 that would have carved or imprinted this in the stone. I uh, took a picture of it and sent it to the masons and asked if they knew about it. And they didn't claim it. They said that it was not theirs. So they suggested it might have been the Odd Fellows. But so far, they've not claimed it either. And the Odd Fellows are a similar organization uh, as the Masons. Yes. And then someone else suggested that it might be the Christian Trinity symbol. Do you think this carving or, or seal is older than the 1914 structure? I think it's 1880, because a lot of 
what is in that general area was carried over. And when they redid the center section, they reused anything that was not burnt was not disturbed. And there's a photo of this carving on our website, cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking to Rhonda Beck, author of the new book, Union Station in Denver. Rhonda, there's another part of Union Station history that's much more accessible upstairs in one of the restaurants. It's a giant green and red sign that looks like it's straight out of the 50s. It's hanging over the bar in the kitchen next door restaurant. Can you tell me about that? That's a sign from the Caboose Lounge and Continental Room. It was a historic sign that had been outside for about 40 years, from like the 1950s to the 1980s, pointing the way to the to the lounge and to the restaurant. And in your book, you have an excerpt from a Denver newspaper that reported when the Continental Room opened, it made the news as being one of the largest restaurants of its kind in the nation. What kind of restaurant was this? Well, I actually have a copy of a menu from the Caboose. Uh, it was a lunch menu, and it offered baked fresh halibut with tartar sauce for a dollar, or breaded pork chops with country gravy for a dollar, or you could get, of course, chicken fried steak for a dollar, <laughs> uh, jumbo shrimp for a dollar thirty-five, or roasted prime rib for a dollar fifty. So definitely, the price is much different than today. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> where was the the where was this restaurant located in in the station? It was in the wing opposite of the area that we're talking about now. So more on the east wing rather than the west wing. Rhonda, in your book, you talk about the revitalization of the station which started in the mid-2000s uh, as an ambitious redevelopment initiative. Uh, but there was a lot of work to be done. A lot of things had been covered over and had been uh, essentially in disrepair, including over 2,000 bas-relief columbine flowers that you can see around the station. They're about the size of a dinner plate, and they look like they've been carved into the walls, but they were covered for decades, right? Yes, they were. There are 2,300 columbines, and if you were upstairs in the Cooper Bar, you could actually touch them or get a really close look at the beautiful detail of that columbine. Also upstairs, there are the 1914 Govan Wash blueprints of the design for that new center section. They found those when they were remodeling, perhaps in the basement vault, and they had those framed and hung on the wall. Why do you think during kind of the decline of Union Station, let's say the 60s, 70s, 80s, into the 90s, why was most of the stuff covered up? You're saying that the, the original iron staircase was plastered over and the columbines were plastered over. Why do you think that was? Oh, probably trying to modernize the station. You know, a lot of times we think that things from, you know, the turn of the century are, are at, at some point in time, they're no longer desired. And so they cover them up, paint the walls and try to give it a new look. And we can be grateful that they just covered them up and didn't remove them altogether. I want to talk now about the fanfare of Union Station's rebirth. In the in the latter sections of your book, you talk about the rebirth of the station, the, the remodeling of the station. Um, but there have been some that have seen the restoration less favorably. A Denver Post article from 2014 said the new station isn't drawing a diverse enough crowd, especially people of color, with the headline reading, Did Diversity Miss the Train in Union Station Architecture? With your historical perspective, what are your thoughts? 
Well, I love it. I, I've asked others, you know, at book signings what they think about it. And I've had only a couple of people who thought maybe it was a little too yuppy. But I typically see. they tend to be the older generation that say that. I, I couldn't really speak to the article that you mentioned, you know, about whether or not it welcomes people of all diverse nationalities. I mean, personally, I think everybody is welcome. So I, I don't know why they would not feel welcome. Well, let's talk about that socioeconomic concern that possibly the restaurants in Union Station only cater to tourists or people in a different or higher socioeconomic strata. And has it always been like that? I don't think it's always been that way. And there are other places that you can eat there besides the higher price restaurants. You know, they've got Acme Burger and they have several other uh, places, you know, with the ice cream and coffee shop. And so... I think that um, you, no matter what budget you were on, you could find something to eat there. And with the new RTD commuter rail line between Union Station and DIA opening uh, late next month, how do you think that's going to impact the station? Is it going to reinstate the building to this, this former glory of a true transit hub, or, or is it going to make it too busy? What are your thoughts? Well, I think it's going to be pretty busy. They're expecting a train every 15 minutes to unload, and they think as many as 100,000 people a day. But that's one of my concerns is how 100,000 people are going to impact the station. Now, Maybe they just walk through. But, of course, in the 40s and the 50s during its heyday, there were thousands of people that went through the station each and every day catching trains, and it was really kind of the hub of the city. So there have been times when that waiting room was pretty packed, but I don't know that it was 100,000 people. Rhonda Beck is the author of the new book, Union Station in Denver. Read an excerpt and see then and now photos of the station at CPRnews.org. After a break, Peyton Manning's legacy off the field and what he'll do next. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know Broncos quarterback Peyton Manning retired from football this week. When I look back on my NFL career, I'll know without a doubt that I gave everything I had to help my teams walk away with a win. There were other players who were more talented, but there was no one who could outprepare me. And because of that, I have no regrets. That was Manning on Monday at a celebration put on by the Broncos. There's no question he'll go down as one of the best quarterbacks of all time, but his off-field legacy is less certain, as is his future off the football field. Ben Volan covers the NFL for the Boston Globe and joins me now via Skype. Welcome. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. So Peyton Manning's retirement speech was almost as celebrated as his career. One writer even put it just below Luke Gehrig's 1939 Luckiest Man on the Face of the Earth speech. What do you think about that? Yes, it was certainly a celebrated moment um, for NFL fans. You know, Peyton Manning is someone who arguably belongs on the Mount Rushmore of all-time NFL players, uh, legendary 18-year NFL career, um, not only is he one of the greatest football players of all time, but uh, one of its most celebrated personalities. The commercials he does, the comedy sense of humor that he brings uh, to his commercials, Saturday Night Live. So everyone loves Peyton Manning, and when a player of his caliber retires, it's going to be a grand ceremony. Um, I think at times it was maybe uh, perhaps a little bit over the top, but that's probably to be expected when someone of his caliber uh, is finally walking away from the game 
especially after just winning a Super Bowl trophy. So uh, not a, not an easy thing for the NFL to say goodbye for Peyton Manning. He's been such a great ambassador for the league uh, and really one of its uh, name brand players in the face of the league. And now the, the NFL is going to have to look for someone to, to fill the void. So, so you thought it was a little bit over a top in spots. What, 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 what areas of the speech? I mean, I don't have the thing committed to memory right now, but I remember watching it the other day on on um, uh, on ESPN. It was you know the 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 music, the the yeah. flowery violin music, and the you know the long ten minute uh, um, you know review of his the video review of his career. And I mean, it's like the guy's not dying. You know, he's still going to be with us. He's just retiring from football today. But I understand it's Peyton Manning, and he's meant a lot to the people of Denver and Indianapolis and fans across the country. Uh, and I'm sure when Tom Brady here in New England retires, it's going to be 10 times as flowery as it was for Peyton Manning. So I certainly don't uh, begrudge Manning or the Broncos. Well, I thought it was notable Manning ended his speech by saying, God bless football. And of course, he was through tears. He said that. What did the speech and the whole retirement event say about our sports culture as a whole? I mean, I think uh, certainly the country at times puts uh, undue importance uh, on sports. Uh, I mean, I do it for a living, and even even I can recognize that at the yeah. end of the day, it is entertainment and a diversion. Uh, here in Boston, we especially take things very seriously. I've never lived in a city that puts sports on uh, the front page of the newspaper more often than they do here in Boston. But uh, people love their football. It's it's a great escape. It's it's become uh, America's national pastime now. Um, Billion-dollar industries around fantasy football and, and of course, uh, legal and illegal gambling and uh, the red zone package and people devote their entire Sundays to watching the NFL and, and buying their, their new jerseys and attending games. So it's just it's a huge – it's become a big part of the American culture and, and the American economy. And uh, – when Peyton Manning steps away, it's it's obviously going to be a very big deal. Yeah. Despite Peyton being one of the most popular players in the country's most popular sport, there's a lot we don't know about him. He's very private off the field. He does a lot of charity work personally and through his foundation. What can you tell me about his impact off the field in, in Denver and elsewhere? It's interesting. Peyton, for as public as he's been, you're right. Uh, he actually does leave a pretty private life and he doesn't he doesn't uh, say much of anything about his family life. I don't think many people know what his wife or his uh, two twins, what, what they look like. You never see them in People magazine. Uh, and there are countless stories of, of Peyton Manning doing charitable deeds uh, and then asking the people, you know, please don't tell the, the press about it. I, I don't want this, this to get out. So he is a guy who has, in his career, done a lot of things, not for the publicity of it, but because it's the right thing to do. Um, his foundation, the Payback Foundation, has uh, granted several millions of dollars to various organizations. Uh, there's a children's hospital named after him in, in Indianapolis, the Peyton Manning Children's Hospital at, mm -hmm. at St. Vincent's. Um, the, I read a story this past fall about a woman in Indianapolis. She was uh, dying of breast cancer, and she wrote a letter to Peyton. Not only did Peyton respond to the letter, but he invited the woman out to Denver and gave her two tickets to a game and, and a full tour of the Broncos facility and everything and spent a lot of time with her. So uh, countless uh, examples of, of Peyton uh, you know, reaching out to uh, the sick and the elderly and doing the right thing and, and not exactly seeking uh, publicity for it. But yet you, you also write that his legacy is complicated by allegations about performance enhancing drugs and about an incident when he was in college and allegedly sexually harassed a female trainer. That was almost 20 years ago. Manning has denied the allegations in, the, in that incident and, and with regard to the human growth hormone allegedly sent to his home. But to what extent do you think are both of these open questions, and how do they complicate this legacy? 
Yeah, definitely. And I actually wrote about this uh, for the Boston Globe this week that, you know, Peyton, for his sterling reputation that he's had throughout his career, he retires at a time where there are some weird kind of dark clouds hovering overhead. Uh, These allegations of HGH use when he sat out the 2011 season with what could have been a career ending neck injury. Uh, And then now, uh, as you said, the incident at Tennessee is, I think, over 20 years old now, but uh, uh, it's come to light again now in this era of social media and it's kind of being re-reported all over again and you're not really sure who to believe it's really a case of he said she said uh he said it was a harmless prank uh the trainer said it was much more uh nefarious and sinister than that and possibly sexual assault uh the matter's been settled out of court and like i said you're only going to get he said she said you know it all depends on whose side you want to believe right now um, but it, I think it it does just kind of further portray how we don't really know Peyton Manning um, for as public as he's been. You know, now there are these two interesting uh, uh, stories kind of, like I said, hovering over him and casting him in a negative light. You know, maybe he did try to uh, ruin this woman's reputation and, and maybe he's not as nice of a guy as, as he's been portrayed. But uh, we don't really know and you're not really sure who to believe. Um, but he has led such a private life uh, off the field that I don't know if we really do get to know the the, the full Peyton Manning. With we just kind of know the sense. one that we see in the Papa John's commercials. Yeah. Do, do you think journalists who cover the NFL are going to keep following these stories? Can you briefly talk about that? Um, yeah, I, I don't think they will go that far at this point, um, especially now that he's out of football. You know, the HGH allegations. I'm sure the New York Daily News is going to have try to have a reporter dig something up but absence a absent a smoking gun like a failed drug test or you know a syringe with his dna on it, it's going to be pretty tough to prove that and, and the nfl is not going to try to punish him anymore he's retired the nfl you know for the nfl i, I think the matter is just about closed right uh, and then with this 20 year old incident you know we, we've already seen there are some new witnesses that pop up and then there are some other people that discredit the new witnesses so it, it's all just more he said she said and now that he's leaving the the daily spotlight of playing quarterback and you know the constant media attention, uh, I do tend to think that these stories will eventually fade away. What do you think he's going to do next? Is he going to stay in Denver? Is he going to make his home here like uh, John Elway? You know, I I don't see Peyton as a lifelong Colorado guy. He's um, okay. Yeah, he, he you know he's grew up in New Orleans and has deep roots there, and and has deep roots in the state of Tennessee where he went to college and his uh, his wife is from and. Obviously, the Indianapolis community means a lot to him, so I, I think he's going to bounce around a little bit. But I don't think there's any question his f- future is in football. And it used to be that ex-players went and became coaches, but now they can become executives. And while I don't think Peyton Manning has quite enough money to buy his own team, I could certainly see him uh, being uh, the front man of an investor group to, to eventually buy a team, hmm. uh, perhaps take a John Elway, John Elway role with a team and, and be a team president and, and run the front office. Um, the one team that I think makes a lot of sense is the Tennessee Titans. There have been rumors that they're going to be up for sale. Um, the, the the owner died a few years ago, and the heirs are having uh, a tough time scrounging up enough money to have the proper ownership stru- uh, structure. And it looks Peyton, like, as uh, I mentioned, is a big-time Tennessee guy, so I could see him eventually taking over with the Titans or, possibly, or frankly, a number of other teams. Possibly going there. Hey, Ben, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Ben Volan covers the NFL for the Boston Globe.
There are a lot of people moving to the state, and if you're new and you want to ground yourself to Colorado, there's plenty of people on Twitter to help you do that. Colorado Matters producer Kareem Maddox put together a list of some of the most useful Twitter handles in the state and joins me now. Hi, Kareem. Hi, Nathan. So why'd you create this list? So I moved to Colorado about a year ago, and I immediately looked to Twitter to get my bearings. So I wanted to share this information that I collected with new Coloradans. Why use Twitter to do this? Aren't there other ways to to get in the know? Sure there are, but I like it when my news comes to me. So I just figured out who was talking or tweeting about what I needed to know and followed them on Twitter. As the list has grown, it's become more useful. So what have you put together? So I've separated some of what I consider to be the most reliable handles on Twitter. It's people and organizations that tweet good information pretty consistently. What do you mean by good information? Good information. So I broke it down into categories. In news, for instance, I've chosen people and handles that tweet about a wide range of topics in the state. I've also included some quote-unquote thinkers, like professors from Colorado's colleges and universities. And I've also tried to isolate some Colorado-specific industry information. Space is a big industry here. So one account I like is Colorado Space News. They share news from the companies in the state who are in the space industry and also keep me up to date on developments in the industry as a whole. So these aren't always direct sources, but also aggregators of information. Exactly. Um, a good example of someone who does both, like will tweet his own stories and reporting and does a good job of aggregating news from around the state as well is Corey Hutchins. Outside of news developments, what if people just want to know what's going on in terms of festivals or activities? I've thought of that too. And most will be city or region specific, like the handle at Denver Westward will keep you up to date on events around Denver. And so I get some of my weekend ideas from there. For outdoorsy things, I really like this freelance writer named Whitney James, who often writes about places to go and things to do in Colorado. And where can people go to find this list? So they can visit cprnews.org for an article I've written up, or just go straight to Twitter and check out the at Colorado Matters handle. Click on the list button, and I've added all these handles to one list that you can follow. And there's another list of all the producers and reporters at CPR News. And at the risk of being self-promotional, they're pretty good folks to follow. <laughs> Thanks so much, Kareem. Thank you, Nathan. Kareem Maddox is a producer and social media guru for Colorado Matters. And we'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The Denver Museum of Nature and Science is looking at genetics in an unusual way, through the lens of beer and food. Why some pairings satisfy and others don't. This is Colorado, after all. A tasting event later this month will help establish a baseline for future research. Nicole Garneau leads the museum's genetics of Taste Lab and joins me now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. This sounds like an excuse to, to, to eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, why is it a good way to teach people about genetics? So it's not only a good way to teach people about genetics and science, but it's a good way to do science. So we are trying to establish a model called crowd tasting. It's a form of crowdsourcing, which you might have heard of. And yep. crowdsourcing is when people volunteer their time, um, their spare time, to help create, solve, and do research at big levels. And we're doing that, but doing it with taste, mouthfeel, and aroma in so, sensory. And sensory. So how might genetics play into a person's beer food preferences? I mean, isn't it all about the taste buds? 
And where do those taste buds get their directives from, of course? Okay. It comes from the blueprint, your DNA. So this um, this event is going to allow us to kind of test out the logistics of crowd tasting. Like, can we even do this and do it ethically and have people have a good time and learn and get good data that we can publish? But also, can we do it in a way that gives us that baseline of preference established uh, about, like, what do people like? And that's the first question we have to answer before we can even dive into what molecules are responsible and what genes are playing a role. So genetics then explains why I have a strong aversion to uh, liverwurst, but I love French fries. Potentially. Okay. Potentially. There's a lot of other factors that are environmental as well as how you grew up. um, And those are all the things that we want to look at. But we have to start somewhere and we're going to start with preference. So for this event, I understand you'll have four types of beers and three foods. That is correct. What are you interested in learning from people with these these pairings? Yeah, this was very strategically developed. Uh, we have four beer styles that are more traditional. Um, we're doing an IPA, a brown, a stout, and a Hefeweizen. And I cannot share with you the ones we chose because I don't want to skew the results. People have favorites here in Denver and Colorado. Oh. So if they want to know what beers, they got to come and we'll reveal them at the end. And then the foods are very specifically based on um, uh, three primary attributes. We're going to do sweet, umami, and spicy. And spicy is not a taste. It's it's the burn of capsaicin in your mouth. So those are the three foods, but in an actual complex mixture. So savory, umami will be in a, in a veal, onion, parmesan tart, right? Sweet will be in a pecan shortbread that's brulee on the top. And so would you pair, let's say, the stout with that and then the Hefeweizen with that? Or is it mixing them up or you just... People will not know. It's going to be blind in terms of what they're pairing. And so it'll be a a combination. People will rate individually the food and rate individually the beer. And then there'll be 12 combinations because four four times three is 12. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you measure good and bad? One person's aversion might be stronger than another's. That's where population comes into play. So we have a very specific questionnaire that we use that's a validated model for how you can ask about preference. It's a nine-point scale. Um, So people are going to be using this scientific model. And then in addition to that, by having many people, we're looking for about 400, 450 people, we're going to get population trends. And that will help us to tighten up our hypotheses for future studies. So talk a bit more about collecting this data. Where is it going to go once you have it? Uh, Of course, it's a fun time for people tasting beer and food, but there there is the scientific aspect to it. There is. And so for this particular one, this is not going to be published. This is is purely just to figure out where we stand and if we can use this model of research. Um, In the future... If we decide to move forward with this, we will go through and get IRB approval, uh, meaning that you have protection as, as someone who's a human participant. And so it would be confidential, stored in, you know, uh, keyword, passcode, blah, 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 so on and so forth, just like we do with all the rest of our, our research studies. What has been done before this in the realm of beer and food pairing in terms of research? So beer and food and wine and food, there's a nice long history of people doing things with um, brewers and with vintners and with uh, chefs. It's led to a lot of anecdotal evidence. In terms of the science, even though you think of wine as being further on, the science is pretty much the same in that there's a lot more that we need to do. And so my goal is to take all those wonderful anecdotes that are coming from really experienced people and turn them into hypotheses and test them and then actually maybe develop tools that people can use based on their preferences that will help them plan their own dinner somewhere in the future. Well, I want to talk about preferences. Of course, this is Colorado. Beer is big here, especially the craft beer industry. I would imagine that many participants would be coming in with preconceived notions about what kind of pairings and what kind of beers work and which ones don't. Do you think that's going to impact the outcome of the study. People know like that's a stout and I Mm -hmm. I love stout or that's a sour. I love or hate sours. Yes. And so we're asking people to go with their gut and and to not come in with as much uh, preconceived notions as they might. But we're also self-selecting. People are buying tickets who like beer, of course. So we recognize that's going to be part of what we need to to deal with when we start doing the analysis. Um, But 
to take it even further is we want people, and this is this is something that our partners at Craft Beer talk about a lot, is step out of your comfort zone. And just because you think you're not going to like something, try it anyway, unless you have an allergy, right? And that's what we want people to do. So that's why we're not telling them the beers, although visually they might be able to guess. Um, and it's, it's a place for us to start. Uh, and so we can hone that in even tighter and in the future do vision blind studies as well. So how will this benefit future uh, taste research? Yeah. So it benefits as, – as someone who's sitting out there right now, like who cares, right? What, yeah. Is this just fun? There's two places it benefits. It benefits brewers and chefs in order to perfect their craft even further to make things that people are going to want to enjoy. So the separate parts come together and make a home run better than they are individually, right? I see. Like there's more joy and pleasure in that. There's this is also I'm doing I'm doing serious research couched in something fun. Um, as the curator of human health at the museum, I'm also interested in, in how nutrition plays a role in health. And what we can find out here with preferences is how do we find out why things work together? Can you use that to make healthier things taste better? So there's two pieces to this. One, yes, is fun. It has to do with great industries in Colorado that are economic drivers. Um, the other piece is truly nutrition-based for me. Healthier things taste better, like making broccoli taste better? Is that what you're saying? broccoli, <laughs> absolutely, which does have a genetic component to yeah. it, so we can talk about that another time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what are some of the other big unanswered questions about taste? Let's let's move aside from this, but what are okay. some of the big questions here? I think the, the things that I'm really interested in that are not answered that I get asked the most is around how do different tastes mouthfeels and aromas interact. So what is the cross modality of all these different senses? How do they play a role with one another? And then also at the molecular level, how does something that's sweet affect bitter? How does something that's salty affect sweet? Um, There's so many wonderful interactions that are going on at the periphery in your mouth and then also in the brain cognitively. And we're only just now starting to begin to understand what those are. If we can understand them, it's going to blow open the door of, of lots of things, not only in the pleasures of eating, but like I said, in nutrition as well. And I find it interesting, you know, so much about taste and, and how the genetics of that work. Uh, but for example, I have allergies right now. I'm kind mm-hmm. of stuffed up. And so I don't taste food as, as much as I think I should. Does that, how does that affect stuff? Yeah, we are, we are embarking on allergy season. <laughs> yeah, as I just said. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and actually, when, when people think they can't taste something, it's a little bit of a misnomer. Uh-huh. Um, when you have a stuffy nose, you're essentially playing with smell more than taste. And all the senses come together to make flavor. But smell really is one of the biggest ones. And so people will complain and go to their ENT docs and say, I can't taste anything. And really, usually they're having problems smelling things. It's really rare to have um, a taste disorder where you lose taste. And, And when you're sick... Or dealing with allergies, it's usually smell. And, and there's also a chocolate exhibit going on at yes. the museum right now. And so that's also dealing with taste. Absolutely. So when you come to this event, um, it is not just about us getting great research and you contributing great self-data. You're going to be able to go through and have access to after hours to the chocolate exhibit. You're going to get the opportunity to talk with some beer experts. we got the guys coming in from Cicerone from Chicago. we got craftbeer.com is going to be there. Um, and then in addition to that, we're going to have a big reveal reception at the end with a buffet dinner, cash bar, and we're going to reveal the beers. And we're going to do real-time results right then. You're charging for this event. Uh, we are. So, so does this so-called, you know, citizen mm-hmm. science, is it also a big revenue booster for, for the museum? So in terms of this one, because we're testing out the model, they're allowing me to break even for the most part so that we can really figure out if this works. But in the future, I think people can look forward to really fun events. They will be charged, but it will allow us to do research. So you're actually coming in, contributing self-data and contributing to crowdsourcing and crowdfunding the research in addition to the data piece. Nicole, thanks for joining us. It was great to be here, Nathan. Nicole Garneau is a curator at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and heads the Genetics of Taste Lab. For details on how to participate, visit cprnews.org. 
From pairing food and drink to pairing letters, Colorado's best spellers gather tomorrow to determine who goes to the National Spelling Bee. The man with the words is CPR's very own Charlie Sampson. For nearly 30 years, he's learned about a thousand words a year and how to pronounce them carefully. I also have the prerogative of throwing words out I don't like, either because I can't pronounce them or because I don't think they're very valuable as a word to know. CPR's Joanne Allen asked Sampson how he did in spelling in school. I was good. I went to Catholic school. We were all great spellers there. <laughs> there was a time in Colorado when the Catholic schools had their own B. Because they, when they went into the state B, they just cleaned everybody's clock. We did it back in the day as part of the regular school day, where now it's an after-school activity. Only certain schools, public schools, bother. It just takes a one coach that convinces kids to uh, try the spelling bee instead of some other after-school activity. And the other thing is, it's a great experience for the kids. I mean, th- this, these are middle school kids, the most embarrassable age group there is. And for them to get up in front of a room full of people and have the discipline and the foresight and the nerves to spell these words, it's, it's, uh, it's quite something. Sounds like you enjoy being with the kids. Oh, they're funny. They're so funny. <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll be out-and-out comedians every, every year. And I think, you know, they, they go for the joke rather than concentrating on the word sometimes. But they're, they're very cute. They're just adorable. They can ask me in the later rounds if I can use it in a sentence. You know, they're probing to get more information from me. So they may pose the question rhetorically in a way that I can't answer it. And then what do you say to them when you can't Well, I say I, I can't do that. For example, one of the rules is I can't overpronounce the schwa this universal uh sound that stands for a lot of different vowels, but I can't overpronounce it, which might be a giveaway for them. And they will sometimes say, do you mean this or this? They want the gradations, and I have to take the middle groan. But they can ask for part of speech, language of origin, use it in a sentence. They can make me repeat anything endlessly. The main sin, I suppose, is they think they have to stall for time, and they really don't. So a lot of them will ask questions thinking they need to stall for time. And very often what that may do is distract them when, in fact, they really do know the word and uh, get themselves off on some track. It's like the alternate pronunciations thing. Sometimes they help and sometimes they don't. That's what I'm thinking as I prepare this, you know. How many of these pronunciations do I give them right away? And I'll even say to kids, you know, there is another, an alternate pronunciation, but I don't think it will help you. If you insist, I'll do it. But I'm usually right. That's really great that you 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 advise them in that way. You're well, able to do that. Well, the idea is that we want them to do well. The idea is not to trip them up, but to give them all the relevant information for them to spell a word. Especially, you know, they they have these little booklets they get. Most kids memorize these. I forget how many words are in it. But at some point in the B, we depart from those books and give them words they haven't seen. This is the big misunderstanding about spelling bees, that people think it's all memory. And to a degree, it is. But if you're going to spell words you've never seen, you've got to know the roots. You've got to know Latin and Greek, especially. And when the kid does win the Colorado State spelling bee, at that moment, what happens? Photographers. You people, the press, (laughs) surround them. Uh, Pictures are taken. The the, uh, prizes are awarded to them. And uh, then later in May, they're off to Washington. Do they give you a hug at the end? Some of them do. And one of the neat things about RB and maybe all of them is previous winners are present to comfort people who go down. 
they leave the stage and immediately somebody who's been there will comfort them. CPR's Charlie Sampson speaking with Joanne Allen. The Colorado State Spelling Bee is tomorrow at the University of Denver. And that's our show for this Friday. Thanks to audio engineers Michael Hughes and Matt Hers, our director Stephanie Wolf, and producers Rachel Estabrook, Kareem Maddox, Andrew Dukakis, and Sam Brash. And our executive director is Ryan Warner. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. Find us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and, of course, on Facebook as well at CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend.